0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. But we're going to pick
1: up in verse 7 of Luke chapter 3. Let's read that verse, and then we'll pray again. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Let's pray. Father, we just ask now that you bless our time together. That you would just focus our hearts on your word, Lord, and and, and with that laser-like precision that you're able to penetrate our hearts, to cut out that flesh part of us, Lord, that that old man. Lord, would you do that this morning as we study this and, and replace those parts, Lord, with the life of your spirit and your word, Lord, as we would yield ourselves to it. And so, Lord, we give you this time. Come and lead us now so that we can understand what it is that you are saying to us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by a brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Last week we left off looking at John the Baptist's ministry as the one who had come to prepare the way of the Lord. We talked about his, his ministry of repentance and baptism, but as he's doing this, and the multitudes are now coming to be baptized, slipping into this crowd are, are these religious leaders of Israel. And, and, and he looks at these men and he says, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They just love the, the no holds barred approach of John the Baptist. I mean, John just sometimes says what all of us have thought and wanted to say, but we've restrained ourselves because we didn't think it'd be too gracious to do that. And it probably wouldn't come out of our mouths in the same way. But I mean, as one pastor said, he said, addressing your audience as a family of snakes is not a customary way to begin a sermon. Asking them, why are you here anyways, isn't a smooth introduction. But John was not interested in preaching a soft message or in tickling ears. And neither am I, to be honest with you. John was dealing with spiritual hypocrites John was dealing with, with men who, who, who had the Scriptures, knew the Scriptures, and yet chose to live in a way that was contrary to the Scriptures. John was dealing with spiritual hypocrites, and he, 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 he addressed them exactly for what they were. Something that they really needed to hear. You know, a lot of people think we should emulate John's ministry of rebuke. Calling people out for their sin and really giving it to them for the Lord. Yet you will you will note that with John and and Jesus Himself because Jesus is going to do this too. Although they most certainly didn't downplay the issue of sin in people's lives, uh, those that they there were those that they directly confronted and they rebuked, but by and large they didn't do it in the same way with the common person, and in particular with the unsaved person as they did with the leaders of israel those who were in positions of spiritual leadership over the people and who knew what the scripture said and as such should have known better should have known better you know just as jesus will later say to this same group in matthew chapter 23 beginning in verse 1 then jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying the scribes and pharisees sit in Moses' seat therefore whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Jesus had no use for the sinful hypocrisy of these men, and neither did John. And yet at the same time, When you look at the interaction in particular with Jesus, when you look at the interaction that he had with ordinary men and and women, we don't find either John or Jesus issuing these same kinds of rebukes. Did they both address sin and call men and women to repentance? Absolutely. Did, Did they do it in the same way as they did with these religious hypocrites? Absolutely not. Even the Apostle Paul Even the Apostle Paul later will make a distinction in our attitude and what it should be towards the unsaved versus towards those who profess faith and should know better, but are caught up in sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, is a passage where where Paul's talking about a rebuke he's made about, about, you know, this keeping company with immoral people. And listen what he says, because he makes this distinction. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Do you see the distinction Paul makes here? He's talking when he talks about the sexually immoral people of this world, the covetous, the extortioners, the idolaters. These are a description of the people who don't know the Lord, the unsaved. And he's distinguishing and saying, look, you, you, you can't cut them off. You, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore them. But he does say, man, when you're dealing with people who should know better, those who profess faith in Christ and know what faith in Christ truly is, those who've been given the scriptures and have the scriptures, the response is completely different. There is a distinguishing that they, the, that, that Paul makes, and, and I believe Jesus makes it, and we're gonna see John make it, but this is an important distinction for us to understand, especially as we see sin increasing and, and, and being brazenly flaunted in our world today. I mean, what we're seeing in America even today is making us angry. We feel like we need to correct these people. But, but how we call these people to repentance is so important. It is so important. We need to remember that unsaved people, people who don't know Jesus, they do what they do because they don't know any better. But the professing believer... The professing believer does know better, or at least should know better, since they profess to have both God's Spirit and His Word at work in their lives. And when it comes to those in Christian leadership in particular who are living hypocritically or are leading others into bondage and sin, a direct and stern confrontation might be very appropriate at times. As John said of those who hold positions of leadership in the church, or I'm sorry, James, Uh, James in his says this of those who hold leadership in in James chapter 3, verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Yeah, we should receive a stricter judgment from the people themselves that we serve over, as well as the stricter judgment we get from the Lord. John's simply enacting that he's looking at these men who have are in these positions of spiritual authority who should know better and yet they're choosing to live a hypocritical life and people are just following them and he's calling them out for it brood of vipers well i just got to diverge here for a minute today and and without any 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 names or anything because they're all over the place but i'm going to tell you this you guys you need to hold those in spiritual leadership and authority over you, those who would purport to be your pastors, your teachers. You need to hold, that, need to hold them to account when it comes to their lives and the kind of lives that they're living. I hope you do look. I would welcome you to to look into my life, to see what my life is, what the pattern of my life is, because I think far too many Christians don't. You know, I just, in in recent months, I've been watching a particular guy, and he shows up, I can't help it, he shows up on social media, and I know people follow me, he has a huge following, no names, doesn't matter, because I could pick, you could pick five names that are like this, more than that. This guy has a huge following, and people are really into his message, because he tells it like it is, just tells it like it is. And I, I've seen people pick up on this, and so, you know, what I do is I tend to look when I see things, I want to know, number one, not just what's your message, what's your life? So I start to dig, and I start to look into this guy's life, and I find that he dumps his wife to marry his secretary at the church, not long after he dumps his wife, but says, oh, I never had a relationship with her. Really? Seriously? Seriously? But I look at this and I see Christians that are following this guy because they don't know. But you should know. You should know. You should know the lives of those who are teaching you. Now, listen, I'm not talking about perfectionism. If that were the standard, I'm in a lot of trouble. You can just ask my wife about that. She'll tell you that. It's not the issue of perfectionism, but it is the issue of a pattern of our lives that line with what the Scriptures teach us are the qualifications of those who serve over you in spiritual leadership. You know, the world has its ideas about credentials, certificates, degrees, all of these things. They're all fine when it comes to ministry. They're all, I'm not poo-pooing that. that's all fine. They're, they can be useful. But the Scriptures never address those kinds of things. That's what men address. But the Scriptures give qualifications and expectations of those who serve our Lord Jesus in a ministry capacity, in particular over people, gives a list of, of things that are expected of them that have to do with qualities of character, qualities of life, marriage, family, their personal conduct, personal integrity. And, you know, I would argue that those things are harder to develop than to go out and get a degree in the Bible is. You can go get a degree in the Bible in four years, and yeah, you might sweat a little bit with some exams and and getting your papers in and everything else that's required. But the character development's a completely different issue. And yet that's the one thing God's people don't look at. You don't look to see, and I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying we aren't looking to see whether or not the lives of the messengers line up with the message. But John's looking. John's looking, and indirectly the people are watching John as he deals with him, and I guarantee you the people are now paying attention to this. Jesus will draw attention, just as I read that passage to you from Matthew. Jesus draws attention, says, do what they do do what they say but don't do what they do he's making the distinction he's saying to them too you should be looking the congruency of the life with the message is so important folks and I'll be honest with you when I don't see a congruent life the message to me becomes meaningless it becomes meaningless it's not trustworthy so I invite you look at my life look at the lives of those who you listen to examine them closely and look and see Is there a congruency with the life, with the message? And if there's not, then it's time to start listening to someone else. Anyways, so John calls them out. But look here. He goes on in verse 8. He says this. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree's Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's immediate response to these men, it's clear. It's clear if you're you're really interested in escaping the day of wrath, which is why they're coming because he's been preaching that that day of wrath and judgment of God is going to come, if you're really interested in escaping the day of the coming day of wrath and you're sincerely interested in, in God's righteousness and His kingdom and His righteous kingdom, then there are two things that you need to do. Number one, bear fruits worthy of repent, of repentance. In other words, repent and let your repentance be evident. Let your repentance be evident. Secondly, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, stop basing your spirituality on your lineage as a Jew and take responsibility for it personally in your relationship before God. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bare fruits in the in the Greek is in a, in a tense, which means that John was placing an expectation of a lifestyle change to give evidence of a true change of heart, which is what repentance is, the change of heart, the change of mind. But he's saying that there's an expectation of a lifestyle change to come from that. Now, some people don't like this verse, or what they suggest is it's no longer applicable because the they think that it takes away from the truth of salvation by faith. They suggest that John was, wasn't wrong in saying this before Jesus arrived, but, but since Jesus finished the work of the cross, it, it somehow has no relevance to people anymore. But that's not the case. That is not the case. John is simply telling them that if these men sincerely wanted to find salvation, then it required repentance, which if genuine would lead to change of heart, I didn't say behaviors, would lead to change of heart, which would then produce an opening in their lives for God to begin to produce good fruit in their lives, just as we talked about when we began this passage last week. It's a matter of the cart before the horse argument, but like I said to you guys last week, it's the relationship, it's the relationship, it's the relationship that comes first. It's the change of mind, it's the understanding that in and of myself, I can't be what's expected of me to be. I can't be good enough, I can't try enough, I can't work hard enough, I will never measure up to the standard that God has, but what he's offering to me is a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, who then, through that relationship, gives me a new heart, places his Holy Spirit in my life, gives me, uh, makes me a new, brand new creation, and from that now the doors are open for the behavioral change to come. John isn't saying anything different. And what John is saying is true before Jesus came as much as it is after. Nothing has changed. Salvation comes by believing faith in Jesus, but believing faith in Jesus and the salvation that he will give to us will produce, and I say will produce, good fruit in our lives. And throughout the Gospels, we see references to the fruits repentance and salvation is meant to produce in us. We see these contrasts between good fruits and bad fruits, and Jesus will talk a lot about that. We'll come to those in, in the in the Gospel of Luke. Paul talks about it when he gives the, the works of the carnal flesh in, in Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 16, and then contrasts it with the good fruit of the Spirit, where he picks up in verse, I believe it's 19, and he begins to talk about the fruit, I'm sorry, verse uh, 22, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. He contrasts these. This good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, begins with repentance, which leads to a change of mind and heart and leads to a belief in Jesus, which then leads to salvation, which then leads to an impartation of God's Spirit, which as we yield to God's Spirit and His work in our lives will lead to fruit production. Salvation doesn't begin with good fruit, but it most certainly leads to good fruit. And John is not saying anything different here to these men. He's simply challenging them to look at the fruit of their lives so that they will see how far off the mark they really are and so that they will change their thinking, so that they will change their behavior, not through personal effort, but simply so that they would repent and believe in the work that God wanted to do in them, which would ultimately bring about fruits worthy of repentance in their lives. And so it is for all of us. And I hope you understand that. You know, I think back to my my early life and before Christ. And I've shared many times with you guys who've been here over the years. But moms, if you're out there, I would have been the kid you wanted. I was the perfect kid. I didn't complain about going to church. I loved going to Sunday school. I had my little bow tie on all the time. If I played in the dirt, I came right in and washed my hands. I couldn't stand dirt under my fingernail. And then I joined the army. Doesn't that make a lot of sense, right? But I had dirt under your fingernails all the time. But, you know, all of these things, I I was your perfect kid. I I did everything that I thought was good to do. And, And then as I was growing up, it was about thinking that I was doing all these right things for God because of all the things I was doing. And I suddenly realized I wasn't measuring up. It wasn't the good fruit. All that was fruit of my own effort. That was fruit of my own production. But the fruit that you and I produce will always be bad fruit. Oh, it may not be all of the list that Paul gave there. It still will not be good fruit because it's not fruit that God himself... Produces in our lives. And yet, this is not about passive Christianity. The idea is once salvation through that relationship has happened, now with all of that change that God has given to me, He's given me the capacity to choose to follow, to choose to do His commands, to do the right things. And I promise you this what God asks of us, He's equipped us to do. We always apply that in the sense of ministry. I'm applying it to your life personally. When you find that verse and he says, this is what your life should look like. He's not asking you to self-produce that particular piece of fruit. But he is telling you that you now have the capacity to choose to walk, to obey, to follow. And he'll meet you in that and that change will come. Oh, sometimes it's difficult because what he's asking of you bumps up against your sinful flesh, which still exists. But as you take stock in who you are and what he's done in you, and what he's given to you, and you obediently begin to follow, the change will come. The change will come. That's fruit worthy of repentance. And he says, secondly, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John knew that the second thing that needed to be addressed was where these religious men look to for their spirituality. He knew that these Jewish leaders, like the Jews of the day, were trusting in their racial lineage for their spirituality rather than in God himself. You know, it was widely taught that Abraham was so righteous that his righteousness covered all the Jews that that came from his lineage, that all of of Israel would be be seen righteous because of Abraham. And so just being a Jew made them right. And, And John is saying... Boy, if you're looking to your lineage to save you, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. You know, this is a truth I think that needs to be grasped by all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. There are a lot of people, although they they might not be looking to Abraham for their spirituality, they are looking to all sorts of, of, of similar things. For some, they're looking to their church membership. You know, my mom, my mom for the longest time believed that she was saved because she was a member in good standing of her church. I say that jokingly, and I'm not mocking now. I know she's, she's not with us anymore today, but she'd sit here and laugh at that as well because she understood late in her life how foolish that was as she began to see the scriptures. There are people who believe it's their church membership. Some look to the spirituality of their parents. You know, I'm just going to tell you guys, you know, young people, your salvation is not given granted to you because your parents know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. You need to follow the Lord. Some look to the spirituality of the friends that they hang out. Well, I hang out with Christian friends? We hang out at youth group. It's got nothing to do with where you hang out or who you hang out with has to do with your relationship with the Lord yourself. Some look to the spirituality of their own good works. Yet none of these or anything else imputes true spirituality and salvation to any man or woman. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone does that. And apart from Jesus, we are nothing spiritually. (laughs) You know, it's in fact, as Isaiah declares, apart from the righteousness found in God alone, here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Isaiah says, man, he didn't say you. He says we. This is us apart from the righteousness that's found in God alone. Isaiah had a faint shadow of the Messiah. You and I fully know the Messiah. We know what he came to do. And apart from Messiah, Jesus Christ, this is us. We are an unclean thing even on our best day. And with a thousand good works done, we will still be found wanting. Nope, it doesn't matter what your spiritual lineage is or in in what you're trusting in. If it isn't Jesus that you're looking to, like these religious leaders, you're not going to find what you really need. You will, in the end, find that you will not escape God's wrath, but you'll face it instead. And John is calling these guys out and he's warning them about it. But I would look at you this morning and say... Be aware of the same thing. It's our relationship with Jesus that saves us alone. But it is our relationship with Jesus that then opens the door for us to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Look on at verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? It's interesting here to note that this isn't the spiritual leaders whom John has just been addressing who asked this. It's it's not the spiritual leaders. Do you know who it is? It's the listening crowd. It's everybody else. Everybody's been gathered around, and they're paying attention to this dialogue that's going on between John and these religious leaders. And it probably was his intro saying, you brood of vipers. That would get our attention, wouldn't it? (laughs) But they're listening. And look, I just point that out to say this. It just proves that you never know who's listening. You know, I told the group out here this morning, you know what? There's houses all around us, and we got speakers out here. You don't know who's sitting on their porch or in their living room because they hear this going on and they're listening to the message that's being shared out here. You never know who's listening to your conversations, which raises the question, what's the content of your conversations? I'm going to tell you this, if it's Jesus, you never know who's listening and who will be impacted by that that you may never realize was impacted by that because what you did is you scattered seeds. You know, when somebody scatters seeds in a field, they don't see where it's all landing. They just go out and scatter, trusting that it's going to land someplace. Not all that seed will take root.